Well, welcome. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. All right, we are glad you're here. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. If you have one of your Mark journals, you might want to grab it out because we're going to be spending a lot of time in Mark chapter 11 today. Mark spends the first 10 chapters, if you will, telling, uh, uh, describing the first 33 years of Jesus' life. He doesn't tell the birth narratives, but 33 years of Jesus' life, first 10 chapters. And then the last six chapters is the last week of Jesus' life. So it's not uh, uh, hard to figure out what Mark deems as the most important part of Jesus' life. It's his death and resurrection. He spends six chapters when he spent ten chapters telling about all the miracles. Do you follow me? Are you with me? So in chapter 11, we get to the beginning of the final week, what we call Holy Week. And if you have your Bible or that Mark journal, join with me as we read, begin to read the story. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it to me. One says to you, doing this? Why are you stealing my donkey? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, found a colt tied to, uh, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, Hey, what are you doing untying the colt? Why are you stealing that donkey? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let him go. And they brought to the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Stop right there. It's Palm Sunday, right? We all know that story of Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey, into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why a donkey? No place else does Mark tell us that Jesus rode anything, but here, 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 he's riding in on a donkey. Warriors would come riding into town on horses. Conquering uh, uh, kings would ride into town on a, on a horse. Military generals ride into town on a horse. But Jesus is riding a donkey. Remember, it's Passover week. Passover week meant the city of Jerusalem would be crowded with with religious pilgrims. Some estimate as many as a million people. It's a religiously charged society. They understand a religion. And they understand what Jesus is portraying and proclaiming as he comes riding in on a donkey. All of them would have known and would have understood the reference to Zechariah 9.9 that says that he would be gentle, the Messiah would be gentle riding in on a donkey. They'd heard stories about this over and over again. They were indoctrinated. They were waiting for this day. And so no longer is Jesus being quiet. Shh, don't tell anybody what I'm doing. I'm the Messiah, son of God. Now it's like he's on a PA system and proclaiming for everyone, all those people in Jerusalem, I'm here. There's a new sheriff in town. The Messiah has come. Everyone would have understood that was the message being proclaimed. Now, I don't have time to give you a long, drawn-out history lesson this morning, but the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, was written about the year 400 B.C. The New Testament begins with the birth of Jesus, depending on, on which historian or whatever. It happened either 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 A.D., something in, those, in that time frame. And so those 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament, they're not recorded. There's, there's nothing... There's no written history that we have. But things were going on, of course. And those people in Jerusalem would have been shaped and formed by those 400 years of history between Malachi and the beginning of of the New Testament. Imagine in our society, 400 years ago, 1620, the pilgrims landed. 
The first slave ship arrived in, in, in 1619. So our history has been shaped. Imagine how much our history has been shaped in these last 400 years. A lot. I mean, it's, it's indistinguishable, right, of what, happened, what was going on 400 years ago and today. So these folks in Jerusalem would have been shaped by the history of the last 400 years. Their view of the world would have been shaped by, by, by things that are not in our Bible. So, but when they saw Jesus coming riding on a donkey, they probably thought of the, the thing that most shaped most of those people in those 400 years. And there's, again, a lot of history in that 400 years. But the, but the thing that shaped them most was when the Syrians were ruling that area. The Syrians had defeated the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were sort of given power by the Greeks who had defeated the Persians, and the Persians had defeated the Babylonians, and the Babylonians had defeated Israel. And so that's all that took place in those, in those years. And that's a way oversimplification, but, but, but that, was, that was where they had come from. And the Syrians, when the Syrians were in charge, oh, they hated the Syrians. Because the Syrians tried to wipe out Jewish culture. They burned the Torah, they, they, they sacrificed a pig in the temple to the Greek god Zeus. It was terrible. They hated, they hated them. And there was a guy, a guy uh, by the name of, in, in 168 B.C., a guy by the name of, of Matthias Maccabee, who kind of started, he and his sons, they ran off to the hills, and they started a guerrilla warfare against the Syrians. And they became local heroes. Because the greatest victory, really, for, for Israel in centuries happened when a 1,000 Jews, led by the Maccabees, defeated 20,000 Syrians. And they eventually, eventually the Maccabees drove the Syrians out, and for about 100 years, the Maccabees and their, and their, and their line ruled Jerusalem. They restored some of the, the, the worship in, in Jerusalem. They were heroes. And Judas Maccabee, Matthias' son, he came riding into Bethlehem. Guess what on? <laughs> not a Chevy Blazer, not a Tesla, not even a war horse. He came riding in on a donkey. And people all proclaimed him to be the Messiah. They, they knew, they knew Zechariah 9.9, they knew. Now again, this is 150 years later. And, and, and so some of those people, some of those people in the streets shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They weren't there when Judas Matthias came through, but they were there. They knew what their grandparents' stories had been. They may have even remembered the Maccabean rule. Before, before the Romans came in and placed Herod on the throne. And so they could remember those days, and they remembered what happened, and they probably thought, you know, Judas Matthias, we, we thought, or Maccabee, we thought that he was the Messiah. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to be like Judas, Judas Maccabee, and he's going he's to chase the Romans out, and he's going to put Israel back in its rightful place. And all will be well. So, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And people are shouting. So Jesus, Jesus rides into town to that hoopla. Now, I don't know who his PR guy was, who his front men were, who, who went before him. But, but I got to tell you, it's a little anticlimactic when Jesus gets into Jerusalem. You know, he comes riding into town, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that was it. There was no, there was no real plan, no victory speeches. You know, hundreds of people weren't healed that day. There's no stories of, of how Jesus fed everybody in Jerusalem or, or raised folks from the dead. Nothing like that happens. They come into town. Well, this is what Mark says. As he entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, 
he went out to Bethany with the 12. That's it. He rode into Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He looked around. Woo, getting late, boys. Let's go home. That's it. The Greek word for looked around there that's used there is, is really scrutinized. This isn't some uh, country bumpkin preacher coming into Jerusalem gawking at the temple. Wow, golly, did you see that? That's not what's going on here. I remember hearing an old story about a guy from the hills, Appalachian Hills, you know, back uh, a, a few decades ago, totally cut off from society and culture, and had to go into the big city to, to a bank to make some kind of transaction. Never been to the big city, never saw anything like that. So he walked into this huge bank, and there was marble floors. He, he, he took his son with him, told his wife to wait in the car, took his son with him, they went into this bank. It was beautiful, magnificent, marble floors. He saw an elevator, never saw an elevator before. Saw this old lady get in this, this, this little room and the doors closed and she pushed a button, the doors closed. And he stood there just watching, watching, watching. And then a few seconds later, the doors opened and this beautiful young woman got off. And wide-eyed, he looked at his son and goes, go get your mother. <laughs> That's just stupid. That did not happen. Jesus is not some hillbilly looking around at the temple going, wow, golly. He's scrutinizing it. He's intently examining it. He's, he is disturbed by what he sees. And we know that because the next day, the next day, uh, when the, geez, well, Jesus is going to see something different. Remember a few weeks ago, uh, I talked about a Mark sandwich. When Mark starts a story and then goes to another story, and eventually comes back to the first story. Remember that? Mark Sandwich. That happens here. Because what's going to happen next is, is Jesus is going to see a fig tree. He's going to examine that fig tree. It doesn't have any fruit. He's going to curse that fig tree. And then they're going to go into Jerusalem, and he's going to cleanse the temple. And then he's going to come back. We're going to come back to that fig tree. And it's Mark's way of saying what, what's sandwiched in the middle is related to what's on the front side and the back side. So what's sandwiched in the middle, that temple cleansing, is related to this fig tree that he begins the story with and he ends the story with. Okay, here we go, Mark Sandwich. That following day, verse 12, on the following day, so it's Monday of Holy Week, comes in on Palm Sunday, Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, I don't know why Jesus was hungry. Why didn't he eat before they left? They knew it was a little bit of a trip into Jerusalem. Why didn't he have a Pop-Tart or something? He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Okay, Mark tells us, Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree. It's not the season for figs. And Jesus goes up and looks for figs on this fig tree where it's not the season for figs. And because he doesn't see any figs on this fig tree that's not the season for figs, he curses the fig tree because there's no figs. Does that make any sense to you at all? Would you go up to an apple tree in, I don't know, April and say, why is there not apples on this apple tree? Ah! No, I'm no farmer. I'm no horticulturalist. But I know that in Michigan, apples don't grow on the apple tree in, in, in April or March. It's not it's the season. Jesus has seen thousands of fig trees. 
as he is crisscrossing this, this region. And he knew, just as everyone knew, that the, the big leafy leaves that are on there meant that there are no figs. It's not the season for figs. Of course there are no figs. It's not the season for figs. But Jesus curses it because there's no figs. What's happening? Well, Mark is teaching us, Jesus is teaching us a lesson. And the lesson, you have to know your history again. We've got to go into history books. You have to know your history. It goes back 600 years. 600 years earlier, the, the people of Israel were so messed up and so disobedient to God that God Almighty sent a prophet, a prophet named Jeremiah, and he said, listen, if you, if you don't clean up your act, it is not going to go well for you, and, and you will be totally wiped out. In fact, Jeremiah said it this way. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs, that they are so bad they cannot be eaten. This is not the only place that in the Old Testament where figs are used as a judgment against the, the nation of Israel. It happens in Isaiah, it happens in Joel, it happens in Hosea. Figs uh, represent the judgment, judgment, judgment of God. So, back to Jesus. He goes back into town. Back to the temple where he has scrutinized it the night before. On his way, he sees a fig tree, curses that fig tree. It has no figs. It looked good, but it had no figs. And the lesson is judgment is coming. Make no mistake, judgment is coming. And just as God judged the people of Israel before the Babylonian invasion, judgment is coming. All right, so Jesus headed to the temple on Monday. Let's talk about the temple just for a second again. I've got to give you a history lesson so we totally understand. Remember, we skipped 400 years of history. When the Old Testament closes, the, the temple is not in Solomon's glory. Uh, the temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the year, you know, 597, and then Ezra rebuilt the temple, sort of, uh, somewhat functional. Then the Syrians came in and desecrated the temple, sacrificed pigs, and then when the Romans came in and placed Herod, Herod Antipher, he was the first of the Herods in that line to, to kind of rule that area at the behest of the Romans, Herod decided to build a new temple. And so he started building a new temple in the year, year 19 BC, so about 50 years before Jesus comes riding into town. Now that new temple isn't going to be completed uh, until after Jesus' death and resurrection, about the year 69, something like that, A.D., and it's going to be destroyed five years later, which Jesus predicted, by the way. So, but Herod, in Herod's mind, he understood that the, the popular belief among the Jews was whoever rebuilds the temple, they're the Messiah. So Herod wasn't a dummy. He was a smart guy, and he said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to, I'm going to make it bigger and better than Solomon ever had. And so he starts rebuilding the temple, 19 BC. And it's huge. It's massive. The court of the Gentiles, get this, the court of the Gentiles was 35 football fields in size. Huge! At some points, the, the temple was 15 stories high. The outside walls were laden with gold. The roof was, was covered with gold. In the, sunlight, in, the, in the sunrise, it would blind you, it was so bright. You could see the temple for miles on a clear day. It's this massive structure. He's trying, Herod's trying to buy his way, build his way into the messiahship. It doesn't work that way. But that's what's going on. And so once you get into the temple, 
uh, it's this massive, massive building. In fact, the, the, the disciples in Mark 13, we're going to get there in a couple weeks. In Mark 13, the disciples are really impressed. And they, and they say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. But again, Jesus, he's, he's, he's not too impressed. Okay, back to Mark 11. It's Monday morning. Yesterday, Jesus rode into town, donkey, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. He's, he's cursed a fig tree. Judgment is coming. I wish I had some, I don't know, uh, music, suspenseful music to play underneath. Um, uh, thank you, tech team. Wow, that's awesome. Mark eleven fifteen, And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything throughout the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it into a den of robbers. What's going on? Judgment. That's judgment. Had you gone up to anyone in the first century and said, hey, where's the most holy place on the whole planet? Every single person that would have answered you in Jerusalem would have said, oh, it's one place, it's the temple, of course. Holiest place on earth, no place even close. There's not a second place, it's the temple. The temple was viewed as the place where God resided. It's the place where heaven and earth met. People would go to great lengths to go to the temple. They would travel miles and miles. It was every Jewish person's goal, dream, hope to at least one time sacrifice in the temple. And, and, and now this place in the first century, though, when Jesus came, it was anything but holy. When you walk through the gates of the temple, you had to exchange Caesar's money for temple money. Caesar's money had Caesar's face stamped on it. Caesar thought he was divine. Caesar thought he was a god. And so it makes sense that they would say, listen, uh, Caesar just kind of broke the first two commandments. Have no other gods before you, and thou shalt not uh, you know, make graven images. So he broke the top two. We're not using his money. And so you had to exchange Caesar's money for temple money, and the money exchangers there charged you a fee for doing that, an exorbitant fee. And once you got by them, you had to go to the sacrifice inspectors. The reason you went to the temple was so that you could make a sacrifice. But not just any sacrifice. You didn't want to make a bad sacrifice. You didn't want to have a lousy sacrifice. That's what got Cain in trouble in Genesis. Oh, I don't want to make that mistake. And so there were people that would inspect your, your, your sacrifice that you would bring with you if you happened to bring one with you. And funny thing is, no sacrifice that people brought in with them ever passed. They always flunked. And so you would have to go to a, 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 a merchant, a vendor, who was selling pre-approved sacrifices. And usually those pre-approved sacrifices were worse than the sacrifice that you brought with them, worse than the lamb that you brought. You know, hey, man, it looks like that's some flaws. Look at that broken leg, blah, blah, blah. Pre-approved. So you'd have to buy one from them. And of course, through all of this, the, the re religious leaders, the, the folks that were running the temple, they all got a kickback. It was a racket. It was a horrible, horrible racket. People were wanting to come to worship, and all this money and buying and selling was going on. To make matters worse, all of the buying and selling took place in that 35-acre courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles. And so you, you, know, you know how it would be. There's buying, there's selling, there's bidding, there's, there's going on. You had all these animals doing what animals do, you know, making noises, making messes, all the things going on in there. 
during Passover week, which is when it is, Jesus and the disciples are there, it's been estimated that it would take 250,000 lambs. That's a lot! So imagine Jesus comes walking into this courtyard of the Gentile. By the way, that's the only place that non-Jews could worship, courtyard of the Gentile. And so Jesus comes walking in there, and there's this buying and selling and bidding and going on. It looks like a, a corrupt 4-H fair, and it's all going on, and people are supposed to worship there? There's no way that can't happen. And so Jesus, 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 he is, he is a holy anger that wells up in him the holiest place on earth, the temple. And what he sees is far, far, far from holy, and this righteous anger wells up within him. The anger is not about himself. Later this week, Jesus is going to stand before Pilate. He's going to stand before Herod. He's going to be beaten by Roman guards. Never once, never once does he get all angry. You don't read anything when he stands before Pilate and says, what are you doing to me? You know I'm innocent. He doesn't say that. He stands silent. But here, Jesus is mad. There's a holy anger about the injustices that are going on before God and his people. Listen, there should be, at there, should be there are injustices that happen in our world that should cause a righteous anger in us as well. You know, starving homeless children, that should cause us uh, persecution and killing and martyring of Christians. That should cause the abortion rate in our country, that should, that should cause a righteous anger. When people are judged by the color of their skin, that should cause us to have some righteous anger. Jesus' response was deliberate. It achieved his purpose. This is not a tantrum. It's a holy anger. And a picture of Jesus is one that all four Gospels tell. They all tell how they go in there and they flip ta how he flips tables and he, and, and he turns over chairs. In John's Gospel, Jesus made a whip and he started using it. And, and if the money changers and animal sellers and, and people, as they were running out of the place, if they were saying anything, they were saying, who is this guy? What do we do to him? What's going on? Mark 11. Let's go back, verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard it. They heard what was going on. Now, again, you would think, Jesus says, I want to turn this back into a house of prayer. You would think that'd be a good thing, right? You'd think they'd say, yes, Jesus, finally. We need this to be a house of prayer. Hooray! The chief priest scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, the disciples and Jesus, went back out of the city. Not surprising that they wanted to kill Jesus. It was their system, it was their racket. They wanted Jesus dead, they wanted to destroy him. So, what happens next? Verse 20. As they pass by in the morning, okay, so it's the next morning, Tuesday morning, Sunday he comes riding into town, Monday he curses the fig tree, and he goes to the temple, cleanses the temple, now it's Tuesday, they saw the tree, remember the Mark Sandwich, back to the Mark Sandwich, back to the fig tree, withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered, and Jesus answered them, now you'd expect Jesus to say, yeah, how about that? That fig tree's withered. It's dead. How about that? What, what, what do you know? But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
just a quick point of clarification. Jesus says to whoever says to this mountain, sometimes you've heard preachers act as if Jesus says, uh, say this to any mountain, but that's not what Jesus says here. He says, say this to this mountain. He's referring back to what happened the day before on the, mount, on the Jerusalem Mount, that's what it was referred to, at the temple when he cleansed the temple. He's referring back to his judgment on the temple. He says, whatever you say to this temple, Temple Mount Temple, that's what's going to happen. It was judgment. But then he goes on to say, because of all that, because of the example that I've just given you about the Temple Mount and the judgment there, therefore, I tell you, verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it'll be yours. And whatever you, you, you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, that's a good lesson. That's a universal principle. Pray, believe, trust God, forgive, all will be forgiven. Pray in God's will, not your will. Don't pray for a million dollars. You know, probably God knows that you would blow it. Don't pray for that. Pray for God's will to be done, that God's will would happen, that God's will would come to earth in Flint as it is in heaven. We're all going through these strange and curious times, but, but could it be that God could use these for his glory? Lord, none of us, we don't have a map to find our way through these days. But we know this, you are with us. You have promised that you would never forsake us or leave us. And Lord, we don't believe that you use anything, even, even things that are so confusing, and just let it be void, but that you can draw us near to you during these days. For folks at home, they need to draw near to you. And maybe we can't get out because of the pandemic, and maybe uh, uh, we, we, we are forced to stay at home, and we're forced to not be in contact with folks, and it's easy to, to fade away during times like these. But Lord, we want to draw near to you. We don't want to fade away. We want to be as close to you as we possibly can be. And there may be areas in our life that need to die off, some habits that are not pleasing to you, some, some attitudes, some behaviors that need you to work. We pray, Lord, that you would do just that, that you would work and move in our lives, that we would be crucified with Christ so that we would no longer live, but that you would live in us and through us. Help us, Lord, we pray. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.